All right. Well, we're getting our feet wet in this brand new series called The End. And um, we are going to be studying the book of Revelation. And um, even if you don't know anything about the Bible, you don't know anything about end time prophecies, you probably have seen a movie or you've heard something about a zombie apocalypse. And and as you're sitting at home, self-quarantining, watching too much TV and eating popcorn, your mind probably has wondered, what is happening right now? Um, I remember when I was growing up, I grew up kind of creeped out about end time stuff. I don't know if any of you can relate, but I grew up believing that Jesus was coming back at any time, and I still believe that Jesus is coming back at any time. The problem was that I thought that I was probably going to be left. Um, And so I always lived in this fear of, oh, shoot, did the rapture come? And I missed it. And so there was this little bit of struggle for me. I remember at one time um, we were shopping as a family at, um, at a mall in the St. Louis area, and um, while we were shopping, um, my mom just ghosted on me, and um, she, she was looking at this rack of clothes, and then she wasn't. And the rack that she had been spinning, and just so you know, my mom can take a rack of clothes. Mom, I love you if you're watching. I love you. I love you. But she could take a rack of clothes, and they would all have the same garment on them, and she could go through every garment and look at it. And then she would go to the next one, same shirt, exa- just different sizes, lots of the, and she'd just go around the whole thing looking, at, and as like a 10-year-old boy, you're, you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, at what point do we get to move on? to?" The-? So I would go in and I would build like little forts under the, the clothes racks, and I don't know if any of you guys relate to that, but I used to do that when I was a kid. And so I'm, you know, coming out of my little clothes rack and I look, and mom's gone. And I was convinced that the rapture had come, and I missed it. It should have tipped me off, though, that my brother was gone, too, because I knew that if the rapture came, he wasn't going. So it was one of those things where I was like, all right, Darren, I, you don't have Facebook, so I'm not even worried if you're watching. So it's fun. I can say what I want to. All right. So if, if you ever grew up thinking, man, the end times is scary, the end times is weird, I don't even want to think about it, you're not alone. There are a lot of great people in history, there are a lot of great people now that don't like to think about the end times. They think it's scary, they think it's weird. As they read the book of Revelation, they're thinking, what in the world? There's seven trumpets and there's seven seals, and is, what's the difference between a seal and a sea lion in the Bible? And I don't, you know, there's all of these things, and you're trying to figure it out, and it's like, man, I don't get this. And so so, so I want to help bring some clarity, but I want you to know it's interesting because I, as I was studying, I discovered that Martin Luther, the great um, reformer, he didn't like the book of Revelation. As a matter of fact, he, he put it um, in a category of questionable books of the Bible. He thought that it maybe shouldn't be included in the, the canon. He thought it was uh, anti-legomena. It was this kind of, hey, I'm not sure. And here's what he says. He says, I don't believe that Revelation should be in the Bible because it does not speak of or glorify Jesus. And I'm thinking, have you read this? Because the entire first chapter is, this is the revelation 
of Jesus Christ. And he's spoken of eight times in the first chapter. And then as you go through, you read he's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You read all, he's the victorious king, the, the, the warrior on the horde. You, all of these things you read about Jesus and you're like, man, this is the ultimate picture of Jesus because not only do we see him as a baby in a manger and not only do we see in scripture he's the suffering servant, but we see that he is the risen victorious warrior king that is unbelievably powerful and is coming for his church. And so it should be exciting. So Martin Luther had it kind of flipped over. The other guy that had a hard time with it was John Calvin. John Calvin was a famous theologian, um, and, and he wrote commentaries on every single book of the Bible, almost, except for the book of Revelation. He avoided it at all costs. One of the reasons is that they, um, both Luther and Calvin, were um, amillennialists, and we'll talk about that later. It's kind of a different thing, but they were amillennialists, and they couldn't kind of fit their view of theology into the book of Revelation, so they thought, hey, instead of adjusting my theology to fit the Bible, I'm going to adjust the Bible to fit my theology, and so um, they're right about a lot of things. I admire both uh, writers, but they're, they're wrong on that one, so... We're just going to go ahead and dive in. Um, I encourage you at home, grab your Bible. Um, if you have a, a hard copy, this, this is what they look like. I know that most of the time we, we have them on this, but this is what they look like. And um, if you're new to, to the Bible, it's the very last book. So just Revelation, it's the last part, you know, just open right up, and we're going to take a look. I don't mean that to be facetious. I mean, if you're new to the Bible and you don't know, this is, this is it. It's the very last part of it. So flip all the way to the end. All right, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 say, This is a revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant, John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Just an important note, this book is called Revelation, not Revelations, okay? There's no Z at the end. It's, it's Revelation. Get it? Because if it were plural, it would be an S, not a... Okay, just stick with me. Don't, don't leave the live feed yet. So, revelation, not revelations. And, and, and the reason is, is because it's not multiple revelations. It's a singular revelation. And the revelation of, is of a specific person, a specific thing. Many people think that you read this book to kind of get an idea of, of, of end time events and the millennial reign of Christ and the tribulation and, and the, the abomination that causes desolation and all of these things. And, and those are all included, but it's not the revelation of the Antichrist. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're looking at. It's to reveal the person of Jesus to us. So if you're reading this book, trying to get other things out of it other than the revelation of Jesus, you're reading for the wrong reason and you're missing the entire point of the book. It's so you can get a better picture of who Jesus is. And so as we read, uh, we see that um, Revelation makes reference to Jesus in the first chapter eight times, just the first chapter eight times. And, um, and in, in verse one, two, we read another thing. It says, this is a revelation from 
Jesus Christ. So it's a revelation of Jesus Christ, but it's a revelation from Jesus Christ. So Jesus himself is revealing himself to us. He's saying, I want you to see me. So here's the revelation of myself. And then he gives it to John. And so another thing that is said here in verse 1, he says, um, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place, to which many of us would say, what must soon take place? John, you wrote this 2,000 years ago. What are you talking about must soon take place? Um, well, the word that's used here for soon is, is the word takia, which is the same word that we use for tachometer, Okay. And it's, it's a, a word that's used to describe velocity. It's a, a word that's used to describe revolutions per minute. So it's talking about the rapid nature of which things develop when they start. So it's not the same thing as if, if, if John were, were writing, he wouldn't have said, hey, they're going to take place a few days from now. He's saying they're going to take place in rapid rapid succession. It's going to happen quickly when it starts. And so that's what we're looking at here. So we look at we look at this as a way for us to see that hey, when this thing starts, it's going to be like dominoes. Once that first domino gets pushed, it's going to be like bam, and all of these things are going to happen. You're going to be like, "Whoa, that is pretty crazy." So um Let's read on down now, verse 3. It says, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. The time is soon. So here's what I need you to understand. This is not an allegory. Verse 3 here says that it is a prophecy. And a prophecy is a very specific genre of, of books in the Bible. And, and the Jews would have been very familiar. Um, this first century churches that, that John is writing to would have been very familiar with this style of writing because they already had Daniel and they already had Ezekiel. And they were familiar with this genre. And this genre in the Greek is called the apocalypsis or the apocalypsis. And it was, it was a revealing of things to come. And so as John is writing this, he's writing it to these seven very real churches. And as he's writing to them, he wants them to read it in light of what they already know and in light of their current circumstances. So as we read it, we have to do the same. We have to read it in light of Daniel. We have to read it in light of Ezekiel. And we have to read it in the context that it was written to these early Christian people. And so, um, so that's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be trying to I- examine this in the context of these things. And so, but, but it was very common for these books to predict the future. As a matter of fact, a quarter of all of the Bible is prophetic books that deal with future events. At least they were future to their time. And about 50% of those events have already happened. And so if 50% of these events have already happened, why wouldn't we expect that another 50% that deal with the future are going to come to reality? We believe this. We believe that God is being very direct, very uh, very informative. This is not an allegory. This is a reality. It's a prophetic vision of future events and a prophetic revelation of who Jesus is. 
So as we read this, we're going to see some different things. We're going to see that there's going to be a giant world war in the Middle East. There's going to be seven years of tribulation. There's going to be an antichrist. There's going to be a second coming. There's going to be a millennial reign of Christ with a literal thousand years of peace. There's going to be an eternal state. And we're going to talk about all of those things in the coming weeks. And so um, I think it's cool, though, in in, um, the book of Isaiah... And you can turn there if you'd like, but Isaiah chapter 41, I'm going to start with verse 21, um, because God has always used prophecy as a way to shut the mouths of false religions and false idols. And so if you're ever struggling with your faith, you should really look at prophecy because prophecy has amazing detail and it is 100% accurate. And when you look at this, Check this out, Isaiah 41, 21. It says, present the case for your idols, says the Lord. Let them show what they can do, Say, says the king of Israel. Let them try to tell us what happened long ago so that we may consider the evidence. Or let them tell us what the future holds so we can know what's going to happen. Yes, tell us. What will occur in the days ahead? Then we will know you are gods. In fact, do anything, good or bad. Do something that will amaze and frighten us. But no, you are less than nothing and can do nothing at all. Those who choose you pollute themselves. It's interesting because if you look at all of the other um, religious writings, none of them have prophetic Chapters. Why? Because it would disprove their entire thesis because it can't be trusted. But the Bible has, again, a quarter of its content is prophetic, apocalypsis, apocalyptic writing that deals with future events or at least future event to the writer at the time and its detail with amazing accuracy. On Palm Sunday, I talked about how Daniel in chapter 9, he calls Jesus' triumphal entry. He, he tells when Jesus' triumphal entry on Palm Sunday is going to happen, he, he nails it to the exact day. Unbelievable. Where does that happen? It doesn't happen anywhere outside the context of Scripture. Isaiah, amazing prophecy. Some of the prophecies that he has about Jesus are so detailed that you think it's one of the Gospels. Matter of fact, um, a lot of theologians and scholars call Isaiah's book the fifth Gospel because he speaks so much about Jesus. Matter of fact, one of the most famous passages in Scripture is, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace is upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. Think about that description. How could he have known that that was exactly what was going to happen to Jesus? How could he have known that Jesus was going to be lashed for our healing? There's no way outside of the inspiration of God that anyone could know that. Another interesting scripture from Isaiah is when he he prophesies that Cyrus the Great and the Medo-Persian army would come in and dis, uh, kick out the Babylonian Empire. They would depose the Babylonian Empire. And so he predicts it. He says, Cyrus will come and he will block up the Euphrates River and march his armies into the city of Babylon. 
this is very fascinating because historians have told us that one of Cyrus's generals was an engineer and he dammed up the Euphrates River up from Babylon, diverted the water flow and dried up the bed of the Euphrates River and the Euphrates River went right under the city walls. And that was one of the great strongholds of Babylon was that they had this powerful Euphrates River providing fresh water supply and it was inconceivable that they would ever be... um, sieged in such a way that they wouldn't have fresh water supply and be able to take care of themselves. You guys remember um, just from world history, the Babylonian hanging gardens and and how they were so unbelievably irrigated is because of the Euphrates River. But what does Cyrus do? He blocks off the water and he actually takes advantage of it and marches his armies under the city walls on a riverbed and is able to take Babylon without even having to Uh, fight the armies that were there. So unbelievable. And here's what's really cool is that Cyrus was predicted by Isaiah and he was predicted exactly how he was going to take over Babylon a hundred years before he was ever born by Isaiah. Isaiah calls him by name a hundred years before he's born. Unbelievable. Matter of fact, many people think that that's how Daniel made the transition from being the Babylonian, uh, the head of the Babylonian seers and magicians and, and transferred into the Medo-Persian empire was because he takes the scroll of Isaiah and goes and sits down with Cyrus and says, hey, I just wanted to point something out to you here. This was a hundred years before you were born. And Cyrus was like, you might be useful. Let's, uh, let's hang out for a while brings him on board. So this is, it's amazing when you think about the accuracy of biblical prophecy. It is nowhere else. You can't find anything with this kind of detail anywhere else except in Scripture. And so, again, as we read through here, um, verse 3 of Revelation says that you are blessed if you listen to its message and obey what it says for the time is near. This is the only book of the Bible that comes with a built-in blessing if you read it. It's the only one. And yet it's the one that most believers are the most afraid of. People are like, I'm not going to read that. That's scary. I don't even understand it. It's confusing. You can't understand it. Why would I want to read something that I can't understand? And it's so, look, if Jesus wanted you to be confused, he wouldn't have given it to you. If Jesus didn't want you to read it, he wouldn't have said, I'll bless you if you read it, right? Jesus wants you to read it. He wants you to live in clarity. You can understand revelation. It's not so complicated that it's only for the educated. This is for everyone because it's a revelation of Jesus. And so we are going to dig and we're going to study this thing. We love it. So it's cool that he says this and he says that if you read it out loud too, So I like that. As much as I can, I'm going to try to read the whole thing out loud as we're going, just because I think it's so cool that you have the opportunity to read it out loud and you get blessed if you do. And then here's the other thing. It says you have to obey what it says for the time is near, to which most people would say, "Um, how do you obey Revelation? It's weird. I don't read a bunch of commandments in there, so how do you read revelation and obey it. So here's here's my take on this. I believe that the answer is in the last verse, and that is this is a revelation of Jesus 
Christ. The whole point of reading this and reading this out loud is to get to know Jesus more. So as you're reading, you're digging in, you're getting to know him. And I believe that a big part of this is the reason this is at the end is and the reason you get blessed if you read it is because you need to live your life with the end in mind. There are so many people that drift through life. They don't have any idea where they're going or where they're going to end up. And, and I believe that if you start with the end in mind, you will end up where you want to be when it's all said and done. And so, so when you live with eternity as your focus, it informs the way you live your life today. And I think that's mission critical for everyone who believes in Jesus. All right, let's skip down to verse 4. It says, This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is who always was, and who is still to come. Do you hear what he's doing? He's framing up Jesus. He's saying, I need you to understand Jesus. You, you, you may have memories and stories of Jesus that you know, and the stories of Jesus that you know are that he came and he taught and he was a great teacher and he died on a cross and there was a resurrection. But what you need to understand in light of eternity is that Jesus is eternal. He was he is, and he is to come. So wherever you are, whatever moment you're in, he was, he is, and he is to come. From the sevenfold spirit before his throne and from Jesus Christ, he is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead and the ruler of all the kings of the world. You hear this? This is amplifying Jesus. This is language that amplifies him and makes him bigger so that as you're living your life, you see how big Jesus is. So you need to understand as we get to some of these stories where you're like, oh, there's going to be a bad war. Oh, there's going to be disease. Oh, there's going to be famine. Oh, there's going to be blights from pestilences. Oh, there's going to be... When you start to read that stuff, you need to not get discouraged. You need to continue to remember that Jesus is amplified through all of it, okay? And so we go, all glory to to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and is still to come, the Almighty One. Here's what's cool to me. We just have this declaration from Jesus that he is, he was, is to come. We get this declaration that he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And now here we have God saying the very exact same thing. You're seeing this, this Trinitarian moment where, where God himself is expressing himself in both persons at the same time. I want you to know that when you see me, you've seen the Father. I want you to know that we're together. I believe that when we get to heaven and we see the throne, we're gonna see Jesus alone on the throne because God, Jesus, the Holy, it's all the same package. It's just three expressions in the same person. So this is so powerful to see this here. God identifying himself with Jesus and Jesus identifying himself as God. This is so powerful. 
All right, let's read on. Verse 9, I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. Who is this written by? It's written by John, the beloved. And I love that he calls himself beloved because we only read that John is the beloved disciple in the book of John. So John calls himself the beloved disciple. What's interesting to me, though, is that for a long time, I thought that was kind of an arrogant statement. You know, I'm beloved. I'm beloved by Jesus, right? I don't think that's it at all. I think that the only way that John chose to acknowledge himself is I was loved by Jesus. I'm John. I don't have any great accolades on my own. I just want you to know I was loved by Jesus. Like what a powerful statement, right? If that was all in the world that we chose to be known as is I'm somebody that Jesus loves. What a powerful, powerful truth that is, right? And so John... Um, one of the things that stood out to me about John as I was thinking about this is he's the only disciple that did not die a martyr's death. Um, He's the only one that was not killed for his faith, and it's not because they didn't try. It's because they tried and failed. Um, The church historians say that John was put in a boiling cauldron of oil, and they tried to boil him to death. And it didn't take. And, 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 and it's, it's like John just wasn't going to have anything. So because they couldn't boil him to death, and because Jesus made this statement, because Jesus makes a statement, he says, if I choose never to have John die, what's it to you? So there kind of became this myth that circulated in the early church. You can't kill John because they're attaching it to here. And, you know, so there's this idea, John can't be killed. And then after he is thrown in boiling oil and then doesn't die, kind of the legend grows, right? And so they're like, well, we can't kill him, so let's throw him on the prison island of Patmos. Now, Patmos is is beautiful today, but when John was on Patmos, it wasn't like Barbados, right? It wasn't like um, uh, Key West. It wasn't like Bermuda. It was a terrible prison island called Patmos. It was overgrown. It was desolate. Um, It was was very difficult to fend for yourself, and that's exactly what you were expected to do. You lived primarily in isolation on this island as a prisoner. And here's what stood out to me. I was thinking about how John gets this unbelievable revelation from Jesus in the midst of his isolation and struggle. Isn't that cool? Isn't that satisfying? In the midst of our isolation and struggle, Jesus will reveal himself to us in the most profound ways. So as you are going through your struggles, as you are quarantined, as you are unable to get out, and as you are unable to hang out with friends like you would like to, I think it's important for you to remember that in the midst of your isolation, Jesus will show up and he will reveal himself to you in a very special way. Allow him the time to do that. Allow him the opportunity to just drop something in your spirit 
in the middle of your isolation, in the middle of your frustration, in the middle of your struggle, know that Jesus can appear to you and will appear to you and will speak to you if you give him half the chance. All right, let's read on. Verse 10, it says, It was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the Spirit. Suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, Write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. It's interesting because it says, it was the Lord's day. Some people think it was a Sunday when he got the revelation. I don't think that's what is meant here. It was the Lord's day when he received the revelation. I believe that it could be better translated the day of the Lord or the day the Lord appeared to me. He's making this a, a, a benchmark in his life. It was the Lord's day. He would forever call that day that God appeared to him the Lord's day because it shifted something for him, because he moved from seeing Jesus the way he had always seen him, because he walked with him for three years. He hung out with, they had every meal together. He, he got to be with Jesus, and now uh, Jesus appears to him and says, hey, here's this letter I want you to write to the churches, and this is what you should put in it. Now let's jump on down to verse 12. It says, when I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and his sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all of its brilliance. Think about that. What a neat picture. What a neat picture. And so, so here is, is John. He gets this picture. He hears this voice. He turns around, and what's he see? Lampstands. And, and there are seven lampstands, and you're going to find as we read, seven is a very common and symbolic number in the book of Revelation. Seven, remember, is a number of completion. Jesus, or Jesus created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. He didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because he was done, right? And so it, seven is complete. It's done. It's final. And so as you read through here, there's sevens, 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 seven. Everywhere you look, there's a seven. And so these these seven lampstands were a picture of the church. And and um, as you as you see the Son of Man, that's what Jesus referred to himself as, is the Son of Man. And Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man as a fulfillment of of Ezekiel's prophecy referring to the Son of Man. And so there's this connection. Again, we have to look at it throughout history. We have to see the anchors throughout history. So we look at the the other apocalyptic books, and we see Ezekiel. Ezekiel says the Son of Man, and Jesus picks up on the theme, the Son of Man. And now John is bringing some resolution to this idea, the Son of Man, because he sees him in this apocalyptic vision. And when he sees him, he, seems, he sees him in a kingly robe. 
with a gold sash across his chest. So this is, this is a symbol of righteousness and authority. So Jesus has the robe of righteousness, and we learn later that the robe was dipped in blood, and there's, there's this powerful imagery that comes with that, but that's his righteousness. And then the gold sash is his authority and his kingship. The white hair was something else that symbol, symbolized um, his righteousness. His eyes were like fire. Have you ever looked at somebody and they look at you and their eyes bore a hole straight through your spirit? Like you're looking at them and you're like, don't look at me. Don't, don't know. Don't see me. You know, I remember my mom, she didn't ever have to even say anything to me. She could just walk into a room and she just throw this at me. She wouldn't say anything, and that was worse. Just say something. Just snap a break eye contact for a second. Give me a moment of reprieve, but no. The eyes. And she would just stare right through, and I would feel so uncomfortable. And, and I'm just thinking about, that was my mom, but this is Jesus. Jesus is the powerful Lamb of God, Lion of Judah, returning king, Alpha and Omega, and he's staring at John, and he has every bit of moral authority that is possible for any being to have. Jesus contains it all, and he's staring through John with his eyes. Man, this is so cool. And then he, the Bible talks about his feet are bronze. Did he literally have bronze feet? No. The idea here is that there's this symbol. Bronze is a symbol. Like all of this that we're reading is symbolic language. The gold, uh, royalty. The bronze is always about judgment. Bronze throughout Scripture is always about judgment. So when you read about judgment in Scripture, there's very often bronze attached to it. The altar that the sacrifices were made on was bronze. Why? Because it's, it's the lamb was being slain on the bronze altar because the bronze altar represented judgment and there had to be blood poured out to cover the judgment. Do you see how this theme carries through scripture? And so Jesus has the authority of judgment that he stands on. He has the right and authority. It's the foundation for who he is in this moment. And it talks about the refining fire. Jesus has the ability to judge too because of the fire that he endured as a perfect person living on earth. He went through all the fires of humanity and he came out unscathed. He came out being able to say, look, I am going to offer judgment to people. And then the voice like the roar of water. It's interesting if you've ever stood next to a really powerful waterfall, like it drowns out the sounds around you. You can't hear anything else. But the interesting thing is, is in that moment, you don't want to hear anything else. You just want to hear the roar of the waterfall. I think it's so cool how, how his voice is described like many waters, the roar of water. Um, and, and so this power is here. And then what is, what is coming out of his mouth? His tongue is like a double-edged sword. Doesn't that sound familiar? Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So cool. And what is Jesus revealed as? By John, John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the 
word. The word was with God and the word was God. So, so John is doubling down on his own vision of who Jesus is by connecting it to this double-edged sword that comes out of the mouth of God. It's so powerful. All right. And then his face is like the sun. Think about it. Have you ever tried to go out? I remember as a kid, you know, you're not supposed to, but I remember going out trying to look at the sun and, and you look at it for a little while and you're like, uh, I don't, I'm done, right? You can only look at, it's awe-inspiring, it's amazing, but it's painful to look at for too long. And that's the impression that you get when a human tries to, to look at God in the flesh. It's so cool, so cool. And now let's read verse 17. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death in the grave. Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is so cool because every time Jesus reveals himself, every time God reveals himself, it's the same word. Hey, just relax because I am alive. I am the living one. I died, but look, I'm here. Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the alpha and omega. He keeps using the same language over and over to comfort and encourage. And what I think is so cool is John walked with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He saw Jesus in his everyday life. Again, think about what it would be like to walk the earth with Jesus and eat with him, to laugh with him. Uh, again, I can't recommend enough The Chosen mo uh, Show on VidAngel, or I think there's a, a, an app for it, but I just I, I can't encourage you enough because it gives you this picture of what it must have been like to hang out with Jesus. And it is so just down to earth, so cool, so practical. Love it. But as you're, as you're kind of imagining walking with Jesus, man, John loved relationship with Jesus. Matter of fact, there's this, uh, there's this passage at the Last Supper where John is leaning up against Jesus at the table while they're eating. He just, like, he just loved being close to Jesus. He's like, I just want to be with him. Everywhere he goes, everything he does, I just want to be around him. I just love him so much. It's so cool. What a powerful picture. And so as, as we think about this, now he's confronted with the, the victorious, glorified Jesus. And what happens to him? He falls on his face in front of him like he's dead. Like that's the response that he gives to his best friend when his best friend appears to him glorified. But what's interesting is this isn't the first time that John has seen him like this. Because if you remember at the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus invited three guys to go up the mountain with him. He invites Peter, James, and John. And they all go up on the mountain together. And when they get to the top of the mountain, Moses and Elijah appear in their glorified forms. And then Jesus is glorified. He takes on this glorified body. Now, this is pre-resurrected, pre-crucifixion Jesus. So he looks different now than he, than he did then. But there's this glorified appearance. And what was John's response when he sees transfigured Jesus? He falls on his face and worships him as though he were dead. And so this is such a neat 
a neat picture. I love seeing how this all comes together. And so, um, so as we read on verse 20, it says, This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars. So just by the way, as we read through, you're going to get the interpretation from most of the book of Revelation just by reading Revelation. Again, it's not cryptic. It's not all of these hidden codes to the end of the world. It's, it's symbolic language that helps illuminate who Jesus is and what his purpose is in the end. That's what it's about. So if you're trying to read other things into it, you're going to be frustrated because that's not what it's for. Does it speak to things that are going on now? Are there things happening now that there's no way could have happened prior to now? Yeah. One of the reasons I think that, that Martin Luther uh, and, and John Calvin dismissed the book of Revelation is because they had no way of imagining how any of the stuff described in the book of Revelation could happen. How does one man track all of humanity and what they buy and sell? How is that possible, right? They couldn't conceive of a way that that could happen. They couldn't conceive of restored Israel. They couldn't imagine a restored Jewish people. Matter of fact, Martin Luther later in life, and, and there's some indication that he was probably becoming senile because of some of the pain that he experienced in his body. Um, I won't go into the details of that, but it's fascinating read. If you ever want to find out what was exactly going on with Martin Luther, you should look it up, what things ailed him in his age. But he, he talked about um, not liking the Jews and, and wanting to kind of push the Jews away. And, and most people, again, believe that his later stories that were like that were probably not quite so anti-Semitic as they might sound, but they were more so probably, if you look at his earlier writings, you see that he had a favorable position, but later in life he kind of morphed. But anyway, the, the idea that they could conceive of the Jews having a homeland and a state and being established as a people with a language, the Hebrew language being reinstated, it was a dead language by the time we got to Martin Luther and John Calvin. So the idea that any of that stuff could possibly happen was like, there's just no way. There's no way. This is impossible. And so they couldn't conceive of some things that as we read Scripture now and as we look at the, the sealed judgments and the bold judgments, as we start to look at those, you look at it and you're like, oh, man, that sounds an awful lot like nuclear war. There's no way that they could have conceived of that. There's there's specific number of 200 million person army being formed. There weren't even 200 million people on planet Earth when John wrote the book of Revelation. So how in the world can you conceive of a 200 million person army descending on the valley of Megiddo? There's no way. And so this is one of those things that as we read now through 21st century lenses, we're like, wow, this seems more and more probable. It's not just possible, but it seems more and more probable. And it seems like maybe, man, what's going on right now seems kind of a little bit creepy. It seems a little bit too, uh, too close to home. And, and I think that what we're seeing right now, even with the coronavirus being a global pandemic, it feels very much like what Jesus talked about in Matthew 24 and 25, the, the labor pains before the end comes. I feel like we're getting close to those times, guys. And, and for this is the first time in my entire ministry career, 26 years of full-time ministry, that I have preached with an urgency like, I really think that we're in the last of the last days before Jesus returns. I just, I feel it. I sense it. Now, I say that in a way that I don't want you to freak out because the Christian church should not freak out when we think about the return of Christ. 
And we, we, I, I talk to people all the time that are scared to death of Jesus returning. I'm like, why are you afraid of this? This is what we've been waiting for. These are the, this is the thing that we've lived our entire life for. We want this to happen. And, and it should help clarify our purpose even more. We should be more eternally focused than we've ever been before. And so as we look at this thing over the next few weeks, that's my hope is that you guys will live with eternity right in front of you. Think about it. Look at it. Encourage each other with the words, hey, Jesus is coming back soon. Jesus himself says to encourage each other with these words. And so here's where the rubber meets the road. As we study the book of Revelation, I want you to get a revelation. I want you to get a revelation of Jesus himself. Not just the baby in the manger, not just the suffering servant. I want you to see the victorious, resurrected, soon returning, conquering, all-powerful, son of the most high God, sitting enthroned in heaven. That's what I want you to see. And I just want to encourage you, will you make a decision. Some of you are sitting here watching this today and you're thinking, golly, this stuff does frighten me because I don't feel like I'm prepared. I want you to know you can be and it's not complicated. Jesus didn't make this a special club for an elite few to be a part of. He created a way for all of us to know him and come to salvation. But you have a decision to make. Am I going to trust and follow Jesus with my life? I I think it's so important for you to get to a place of understanding that, hey, I'm going to trust Jesus with my life. You're, You're betting your life on something. You are betting your life on something. Some of you are betting your life that there is no God, and when we all die, we just die and we turn to dirt. You can bet your life on that if you want. I'm betting my life based on 25% of the Bible being written as prophetic teaching. Half of those prophetic teachings already coming to reality. I'm betting my life that the other half are too. And I'm betting my life that Jesus is who he says he is, that he can do what he says he's going to do, that he's going to be the soon returning king, and that he's going to call his church home. And when he does, I'm going to be a part of the team. And I want you to be too. And Jesus says that you can be. He says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So today, if you're wondering, if you're questioning, if you don't know if this thing is real or not, I want you to take a step of faith. And I promise you, the moment you step across that line of faith and say, Jesus, I believe, something will shift inside of you. Something will change. There's a switch that comes on. You can't explain it. You can't describe it. But what happens when you pray and say, Jesus, please, Forgive me of my sin. I want to cross the line of faith. I want to follow your lead. I want to live like you. I want to move your direction. When you do that, Jesus does not expect perfection, but he opens up the door to sonship, and you will find your life turning upside down. You'll say, wow, I can't explain it. This is amazing. So I'm going to pray, and if you would like to pray with me, I encourage you right where you're at, whatever you're doing, to just pray with me. Father God,
I come to you today. I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I ask that you would help me to live with eternity and focus. I'm so tired of trying to live this day-to-day life and get frustrated and be discouraged and disappointed. I want my life to count. I want my life to be something more. And more than anything, I want to live with eternity in focus. Lord, please change me. Help me to become the person you've designed me to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I, I believe that if you've stepped God's direction, he is there to meet you. And I want to just encourage you, if you just prayed this prayer of faith, would you message us on our church Facebook page? Just let us know, hey, I stepped across the line of faith. What do I do next? We would be happy to point you in the right direction. We've got some options for you to be discipled and learn more about Jesus. We're doing some stuff uh, online right now in terms of discipleship where it's live interactive, but you're able to interact with somebody who will help disciple you. So if you're struggling, you need help, message us on our Facebook page. We would love to help you out. I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in this week. We're so grateful for what God's done here and what God is doing in your life. Please, uh, even after this is over, share it with your friends. Encourage people to get involved with what God's doing through your local church. We love you guys, and I look forward to seeing you on Wednesday. God bless you. Goodbye.